Well, uh, welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And today, Brad, uh, we've got on special guest Seth Neve. Uh, and we want to ask Seth, where did all the bushels come from this year, Seth? Well, that's a very good question. And I surely don't have the answer or the answers. But, um, you know, there's a number of things that we can sure talk about. And I think it's good good fodder for a, a podcast. I think... Uh, just start out with, the, you know, the big environmental pieces that we do know about, and we don't have really good data on this, but it's, I mean, the classical wisdom is really right on this, is that, you know, August makes for beans, and uh, or makes the beans, or however you want to say it, and I actually have adapted that for my own use, and I really call it late August, early September makes beans, and I think I think that was certainly the case this year. And the other adage that really works is uh, soybeans don't like wet feet. Uh, and I think if you take both of those things together, it explains a whole lot of what's going on this year. Uh, it doesn't explain everything, but I think in a lot of cases, it, it explains quite a bit of it. And uh, there's a lot of interactions you know, within environment, and then there's a lot of big management factors that drive yields and then interact with those things too. But I think between the two of those things, that really, that really covers a lot of this question about where the beans came from. So Seth, uh, you know, I guess in in my area in South Central Minnesota, we were kind of hearing reports of uh, of uh, yields typically in the 50 bushel range, with some exceptional spots moving to 70 plus, and then some maybe some problem spots dropping into the 30s. Uh, is that is that kind of consistent with what you're hearing statewide? I know there were some parts of the state that were extraordinarily dry. Um, and maybe some areas when you move like way to the southeast where uh, things were actually relatively normal from precip. Uh, what, what's, what's kind of the statewide report? Well, I think it's exactly what we kind of predicted in August was we said there's going to be a huge variability out there because we could see it when we drove across the, the, the landscape. And I think that's really what we did get. And I think um, you know, so, so just the summary is the Northwest did continue to suffer just because they were so dry for so long. Even in the valley where they have good, heavy, deep soils, they weren't able to really utilize, uh, they weren't able to capture enough timely rains. Um, I would say through a lot of the rest of the state, it was, it was one of two things. It was just how much soil moisture they had there and the soil type, soil water holding capacity. And then when they got those little half-inch or two-tenths or three-quarter-inch rains that came uh, late, and, you know, how many of those and the, the timing of those is what really, really kind of closed it. But not too far from you, we've, I'm working with some farmers, and, and um, Brad, and not too far from you, they've, we've got, we had a field there that uh, field-wide averages in that area in, in southern Waseca County were in that 80-bushel um, range. Um, the first reports for the corn was kind of disappointing. They only had 200 bushel corn, uh, but then some of the later stuff they pulled out was closer to 250. So it was actually an odd area where the beans surpassed, you know, expectations and the corn did quite well. Um, but the farmers really wanted to know where it came from because they simply didn't get any rain all year. But it's, it's really heavy soils, held a lot of moisture, and I think the, the big issue for me is that, that normally they're penalized because of too much water early, and you take that penalty away, and there was just enough water left to make a, a yield out of, out of the remaining soil um, 
water holding capacity plus just a couple small timely rains. Yeah, that's kind of, kind of, kind of what I kind of what I observed. I guess from my standpoint as a soil scientist, this whole issue of what the available water is is so specific to soil texture or a soil type that it's it's hard to really uh, uh, generalize that uh, beyond the the local areas, but but uh, what, what I guess what we did see, of course, was that the soil reached complete saturation uh, in the fall of 2020, early in the harvest season, uh, and then it got extraordinarily dry to the point where I was actually getting phone calls like at, at the end of November saying, well, it hasn't rained now in six, eight weeks. And I was like, well, who cares? I mean, we're going into winter right now. But really, that kind of carried on. But but in in general, that was kind of the conditions that we planted into, and most of our glacial till soils did retain enough uh, enough uh, moisture that that uh, that th there was a supply in the top and the bottom, um, not so much in the middle. That uh, when we were getting the uh, the half an inch of rain, when we really needed an inch and a half. Um, we were really quite fortunate in a lot of cases that, you know, most of the fertility in the soil is, is contained in the top six inches. That little bit of precip uh, kept the, uh, the plant nutrition moving into the, the plant while there was uh, still adequate moisture from the, the lower roots uh, uh, to, to keep things alive. Yeah, and if you want to, if thinking back, it, it, you you mentioned planting, and if you remember what we were really up against in spring, I mean, farmers really planted into dry dirt, very almost universally, across southern Minnesota. It was quite dry, and I just pushed these guys to go because I said we always get plenty of rain in May. You know, there's never a question about not getting enough moisture to get these things going. We got to get them in the ground. And then I got a little bit concerned. There was there was some of this some of these areas that were pretty dry, and there was a little bit of question about some emergence in some fields. But it seemed like this there was just enough water to get those things up and going, and then there was just enough water to keep them going. And then soybeans a funny little plant. It it does not rip through water like corn does. It it kind of hangs down and hunkers back, and it's sensitive to. Um, it's more sensitive to uh, you know water stress. It doesn't put on bigger leaves, and it, it kind of stays low and short. And I think I think the soybean tended when I looked at fields, I could see these big, tall corn fields that looked great, and the soybeans were just kind of stunted and, and short and right in the area. And I think I think it helped the soybean crop in some of these areas that we maintained a little bit of usable water until later, just because they didn't. They didn't rip through it quite as quickly, and they, they really worked to put a root down um, and, and find some water to, to, to utilize later. One of the things that I find kind of fascinating, Seth, and you and I have, have chatted about this, is that uh, I own some land, and my wife and I own some land that in, in uh, Lesseur County that we rent out, and we did a significant conservation project on that property this year. And so our renter planted about half the field, uh, the east side and the west side, when, when he wanted to, uh, which was around the 15th of May. And due to the construction activities, we put in some sediment basins out there, wasn't able to get the other half of the field, the center part of the field, planted until about the 15th of June, which, of course, you know, we were quite concerned at that point uh, um, whether there was going to be moisture and so forth. And, and, and it was extraordinarily dry. 
uh, to the point where he only had about 50% uh, plant emergence uh, in the week after he planted. Uh, we ended up catching this large rainfall right before the 4th of July. It was uh, about three inches out there. And then the, the those beans that laid in that dry soil actually did germinate. And so we had in the center part of the field this strange uh, unevenness of in, in strips uh, where there was some tall ones and some short ones. Unfortunately, it was soybeans and not corn because I think we know corn won't tolerate that situation. Uh, then, of course, the strange thing about it was with as long as the growing season was, even those late planted beans in the middle of June, uh, things extended out to the point where they all kind of caught up, evened out, and they ended up not really doing a lot worse than, than the, the beans that were planted on time. Uh, Could have knocked me over with a feather. I really didn't see that coming uh, all the way through uh, you know the end of July and through August. Uh, the, the only thing I would say, though, about those late planted soybeans is they seem to pot out very, very close to the ground. Uh, extremely difficult for the combine to to pick those up. A lot of, uh, there was a lot of yield loss just simply because you weren't going to be scraping the soil in through the, the bean head. Well, and along those lines, Seth, you mentioned kind of this delayed emergence, even when we were planting into some dry conditions, kind of a more normal planting uh, date. Uh, you know, there was a better than a week difference in emergence on some of these fields because they were too dry. And and uh, and so what, by the time they finally did emerge, some of those fields still had some pretty phenomenal yields as far as, you know, better than expected to start the year off with, you know, it was better than Brad's situation with maybe 80% of the of beans uh, emerging and then a week or better later, the, the remainder coming up and, and kind of seeing things catch up again was just really remarkable. Yeah, again, I, you know, it's, it's this old thing about, um, you know, the, the timing of those rains that we got late and in late, egg, late August, early September making, uh, making the yields. And I just have to remind folks that that planting date and that early season piece is really to set the yield potential out there. Um, and so that early planted soybeans, had we had a little bit more moisture, had farmers planted really good long season stuff, uh, and then had we had a little bit of rain early on to keep things going, I mean, we would have seen instead of, you know, 50, 60, 70 bushels, it would have been 60, 70, 80 or, or plus in those areas. So it's really that early season sets the, sets the high bar as what the potential is. Um, and if you don't get things quite right, I mean, you just can't, you know, you're, we're not going to have 100 bushel yields when we get out there and get planted late or when, we're, when we have uneven emergence. But... If things pan out, we can do really, really well. Um, and on the other side of it, though, is that when we don't do things right, it can kind of chip away at the bottom end of the yield. But in most cases, soybeans are pretty resilient. And that that early season stuff that we do, it really doesn't hurt the low-end yield. If we suffer from drought or other things, it seems like everything kind of bounces down around some sort of minimum threshold. And the, and the beans... And maybe it's a percentage issue, too, is that when we have lower yields, we don't see those two or three bushels as much as we see those four and six bushels when we get up towards 100. But um, certainly, the, I, my feeling anyway is that we don't, we, the downside risk on the low end of those things isn't quite as important to us. 
So Seth, are you a, a proponent of the early planting full season soybean? Do you think that's where we need to be headed or is it kind of the jury still out? Do we have too much risk going early with some of what you said about, you know, beans don't like wet feet and they don't like the cool and wet conditions. Um, you know, where are we at as far as assessing that risk? Well, your first comment was the most important one is that a lot of farmers do actually miss it. They plant early, but then they don't couple it with a long season variety. And uh, that that's where the only benefit that we get to a really early season planting, and I'm basically talking anywhere, anytime in April, um, is that uh, we have to couple it with a good long season variety. Now, granted, some farmers already push maturities already, and they don't need to go earlier. Um, but for those that are already fairly conservative and kind of in that sweet spot for adapted varieties for their region, they, you know, if they want to plant early, if they want to get yield uh, gains from planting early, they have to put it together with a longer season variety. So then the next piece of that is, is really a good one is, well, what does that gain us if it's cold and wet? Our research really doesn't show a lot of downside to slow emergence. Um, we have a hard time fi finding any real good evidence that those soybeans that sit in cold, wet soils for a long time and emerge are really any worse off than the ones that were planted a little bit later and come up the same day. It seems to be that emergence timing is really the critical piece. So when can you get those beans in that they can come up when's the first day they're going to get come out of the ground is really when we start the clock on these things. We talk about planting date, but it's not planting date, it's emergence date. It's we you know, we talk about seeding rate, but it's not seeding rate, it's it's plant stand. So, but we have to work backwards and and build build the plant stand and build the emergence based on populations and and planting dates. So Seth with with uh with the uh, uh some of the the oddness of this year we look at what the trends have been like over the last decade with it being a lot wetter. Um, this, of course, being a dry year. Um, are there lessons to be learned that farmers should be making with variety selection and their, their, uh, uh, their different resistance packages and so forth? Or do we just write this last year off as an anomaly? I don't know that there's a lot of, I mean, this early season drought or, you know, full, you know, three quarters of the season or seven eighths of the season drought that we had this year uh, is quite unusual, right? I don't, I don't think that we need to work too hard to plan around it. And it, honestly, there wasn't a lot that we could do to manage the crop differently. You know, you, I think that there's some opportunities for, you know, certainly this year we could have gone to no-till and not be penalized. I think that we could have retained a little bit of soil moisture in some fields and not been penalized. And I think that translates across a lot of years. We just have to remember it when we have a year where we, where we may get a penalty from, from reduced tillage. So this is a year we definitely wouldn't have. Um, but I think from a real long view, when I look at the climate and how things are different these days, I, the biggest thing I see is this late season rain that we get that we never got 20 years ago. It just seemed like once we got into August, the, the tap shut off and then we had a few rains here and there that would be kind of naggy and would bother our harvest. But the abundance of frequent and heavy late season rains does play a role. And 
And I think that is probably the big push on these long season varieties that was what we have an opportunity when we have warm conditions in condition in in combination with water and that's what we had this year and that's why we have green stems and all this harvest problems this year is we had that but it also provided the yield benefit that we got this year so i don't know that i i certainly wouldn't want to i certainly wouldn't want to try to manage around potential of having um green stems or or manage any of those things because those tend to be problems that we have because something happened right. It happened largely this year because we got late season rains in combination with good warm temperatures. And in the end, we ended up getting a lot more beans out there than we would have had um, if we would have just let the things dried up. So Brad was mentioning uh, some low potting height. So with some later planted soybeans, we were actually out, uh, Brad, taking some nitrate samples, I think, at that, that farm a week or so ago. And, uh, pretty remarkable and so i don't know if seth if you want to talk to uh you know what are some of the factors that uh, influence potting height on a, on a soybean plant yeah i had a student 10 years ago did a brilliant study on this and we just have never gotten back around to getting it published but we've got a lot of really good data and outside of a late planting scenario in a specific region or a specific location basically the the um the question is about um, is about yield per plant, basically, and so if we spread that yield around on that plant, we can we can push it up a little bit higher into the plant. But the big driver is actually yield. The more soybeans want to pod kind of right in the middle of the plant, and when we have certain conditions, we'll get low podding um, when we need to when that plot when that plant thinks that it can support greater pod set it'll put some more on low and in addition it'll it'll set pods at the higher nodes too now the question is what happens at the end of the year where the, where those fill out and you know on the one side of the top of the plant those fill out when we have really good end of season conditions that little raceme that we have at the top of the plant that's where we get two and three and five extra bushels when we get those pods at the top of the plant fill out on the bottom of the plant, those are probably a little bit earlier. We have good conditions kind of in this late August, mid to late August, and then that plant will really set those. But basically what I'm trying to describe is this kind of plant architecture thing where, where plants bear the pods um, and distribute them within their plant uh, as evenly as they can. But if, if when yields actually get increased relative to the stature of the plant, when we have high yields and short plants for whatever reason, and that could include a late planting when we have good conditions, is those, those plants will end up setting a lot of low pods. Uh, so for the most part though, when we have a lot of pods getting clipped in the fields, it's because we actually have really good yields uh, because that plant just had to, had to push that, setting, that pod setting down a little bit lower, except when we have some real low populations and some late plantings and some of those things. So Seth, I want to I want to come back to something that you said uh, a little bit before this related to the green stems and the, it being weather related. I I would just like to uh, to uh, revisit that and and because I I guess I I think a lot of farmers I've interacted with have been curious whether their variety selection played a significant role in that. I know there was a lot of uh, 
a lot of farmers I know who actually weren't combining beans when the, the beans themselves were ready, but the plants were green, tough. Um, there was issues, uh, we talked a little bit before we started recording, with some, some shattering, which I think probably was related to the fact that the plant was, the stem was tough to cut and that it get, got shook a few times before it actually went into the head and, and the, the pods cracked and the beans dropped and so forth. So uh, can we be confident that that really was just simply an anomaly of the weather this year or, or, or might there be some, some uh, varietal differences in those characteristics? Because I think a lot of guys would like to avoid that, that happening in the future. I spent some time with my buddy uh, Jeremy Ross from Arkansas this week, and um, it's it's amazing how similar this um, kind of phenomena is to something they have a lot down there in, in Arkansas. Um, they've got a lot of warm temperatures during seed filling and then into early maturation, and then in combination, a lot of other stresses in the plants, including some drought stress early. Uh, but what happens to them is they get these late season rains, especially with hurricanes come in and it just, it just turns their crop, uh, upside down and they have a lot of problems, um, because what they're end up getting is they're really, um, is there, it's the combination of stresses. And then the big, the big thing that's really killing them is seed quality issues. And those are some of the things that you talked, you and I talked about early, uh, that's an, that's kind of, a uh, an exaggeration or a phenomena that we see at really the ex extreme of a side of the, the green stem. But going back, if we want to break up this green stem, break it down into the very basic things and just look at green stems itself. So the thing to remember with green stem syndrome in soybean is that it's simply a buildup of sugars in the stem that can't find a home in the seed at the very end of the season. So there's a number of things that could drive that, but basically it's always because that plant has some extra energy that it planned on pushing up into those seeds and the seeds pulling in that didn't get utilized. So it's, it's sitting around in that stem and that's hanging out there and that stem doesn't mature or senesce naturally. And so there's a, there's a buildup there. So why did that happen? Well, uh, one, thing that we know happens is a lot of times, uh, and this is probably what happens when we see individual plants, like one in a thousand in fields that are really green. This is, a, this is probably due to a, you know, a partial male sterility or some other thing where we've got a plant that just doesn't put on very good seed set for whatever reason. It has five or 10 or 25% of the pod set that it would normally have. And therefore that just that plants built around making uh, energy for that seed and the seed just wasn't there to take it in and it just sits around in the stem and that plant never matures. The leaves don't fall off, the stems stay green. But this year it was basically uniform in these fields so clearly there was something going on that the seed set probably wasn't good which we would expect because we had really tough conditions during that late July, early August period and the, the plant was just not very optimistic. And then we had good conditions later on that provided more resources. So I think from a, from a high level, from these fields that had uniform, naggy, green stems, I think we can basically say the plant had just much better um, physiological conditions at the very end than it really thought it was going to have early on. And so then that, there's a buildup of those sugars. 
But then we had really extreme examples, and I, you know, Brad and I talked about this thing where we have seed quality issues, where the 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 seed actually, uh, the pods either break or crack. They get water in them. We get moldy seed. We have examples where plants are completely R8, and then they put up some shoots out of um, axillary buds around the first and second nodes. We saw some of that this year. It just doesn't make any sense to us in the north. Um, but when I talked to Jeremy in, in Arkansas, he's like, oh, yeah, we see some of this. We see some of that. We see a lot of that. So um, it's, it's something that we just, I think, this cold weather, this sharp turn in weather that we get most years where we have good warm conditions going into fall, the water turns off, the plants kind of start to senesce, we get cold nights, starts to freeze up. That normal condition really allows us to have this kind of regular harvest that we're most used to. And we just didn't have those things this year. It was Everything was upside down. And that's fascinating because I think the, the thought process of most farmers was, well, it, it'll freeze any time here and then we'll just go out there. And it, and it just didn't happen. But, you know, you mentioned uh, Arkansas, I think Missouri, Arkansas, Mississippi, places where a lot of beans are grown. Clearly, they aren't waiting for a frost. And so, yeah, it's got to be uh, stuff they just deal with routinely that we just don't even that doesn't enter into the mindset of a farmer in Minnesota. That's right. Plus all the additional stresses. I think we have to remember that the additional stresses on the plan, and, and, and I don't know what the direct cause, but it certainly could be part of this just nipping at that total pod set in the plant where we had, that, we had significant enough drought across a lot of ranges that we just had lower pod set. Um, and, and that may be enough to, to be driving a lot of this. It's just strange to see branches coming from axillary buds so i just it doesn't make any sense what would be the environmental cue to even propose that that would happen in a plant that's reached its maturity you know it's it's ready for harvest and well just, yeah and by our our definitions as agronomists it's an r8 plant not only is it r7 we'd call physiological maturity but it's r8 it's absolutely mature so by definition, we kind of consider those to be basically dead plants out there, and for them to actually kind of re-sprout and regrow and and have some other problems is is very unusual for us up here. And we did see some other anomalies, though, Seth, with uh, lilacs blooming uh, September, October, and just some other weird phenology symptoms that were were happening on different plants and things that that just just mind-boggling to see happen late in the season but you know we didn't right, freeze cause, until cause, late yeah yeah because because the the beans we were talking about the the beans that where the pods were cracked and they were molded uh uh where where i saw the lilacs blooming was only about a mile away from there so so yeah some pretty extraordinary weather uh, uh weather anomalies yeah just a just a weird weird year so the answer to your question is let's not take any uh, let's not take any notes from this year and, and work off of those. I just don't know that there's enough here that's relevant for uh, more than one year in 20 or one year in 50 or um, 100. So let's uh, let's let's keep planning and, and hoping for a, a much more normal year next year. 
Well, I, and I think there was some farmers, though, that was entering into their thought process like, well, maybe I grew too long of a season of bean. I should have just planted a shorter season bean here. I might have gotten as well as the with the yield, uh, uh, and then I wouldn't have had these green stems. But, you know, I, I think uh, from what you're saying, uh, A, that's not the case, and B, you actually really would have been penalized. I think we all saw that rain that came in, in early September when about half the beans, it was way too late for them to do any good. And then, then the other half was able to make some use of that. And, and uh, really only those full season varieties were able to take advantage of that. Yeah. And then on the other more extreme is you probably everybody's seen some of these fields where a farmer planted something, maybe a half maturity group early or something like that to get manure out or something. And those beans literally died at the end of August because they just couldn't, they got pushed so hard by the heat and the, and the dry conditions that there was actual premature, you know, maturity in some of those. And, and I don't know what those yields were, but it's hard to imagine that they got over 25 or 30 bushels in a lot of those fields. Yeah, well, one thing we didn't uh, talk about yet is mid-season, so the, kind of that June time frame, if we reflect back to the season, um, there were some abnormal conditions with soybeans, kind of uh, with the Wasika area, Brad, and, and uh, uh, I know in Freeborn County there was a field I got some photos of where uh, these soybean fields were, like, I guess we were talking about this earlier, not the wettest part of the field, but parts in between tile lines, uh, the beans started to develop some abnormal foliar symptoms, some chlorosis, uh, just really looking bad. Uh, root development kind of hindered on when you dug some of the plants up. And, uh, uh, but then all of a sudden things turned around and they started, some of these areas started to turn green again and the yields weren't very good in these locations. But, uh, uh, you know, at the end of the year, they still ended up having 30 or 40 bushels when they, they looked like they were headed on their way out. Uh, you know, they were headed towards death the mid-season and just really strange to see kind of a flip-flop of symptoms like that going from looking poor to the point where they were look like they might die and then to see things kind of turn around again. Well, yeah, a lot of that was in my neighborhood. Uh, we had a rainfall. I mentioned uh, uh, that, that our property in Lasseur County caught three inches. Where I live in Waseca County, we actually had five. Uh, so that's 10 miles away. And in that area that got that large rainfall, I think it was at the 3rd of July or the 2nd of July, something like that, um, there was a lot of runoff. Uh, and where we saw those beans dying was not really where the water was standing. It was where the soil was saturated on the edges of where the water was standing. And in some cases, places where the water ran, uh, I had neighbors, uh, friends who were saying, well, did we have some kind of a herbicide runoff? Because where the water ran, the beans are dying. And and uh, I know I had some conversation with Dean Malvik at the time, and we actually sent some plants in. Uh, for diagnosis, but I don't think we ever really came up with a final conclusion because there was a lot of conversation about uh, whether it would test positive for various diseases, but whether the disease itself really actually caused the damage. Some of those beans uh, did they, they they did die. I mean, the top the top growth died, and but clearly the roots didn't, and they resprouted. Uh, strangely enough, then this went this uh, fall at harvest time you would see these patches of, of weeds out in the field and you'd think that those were uh, drown out spots. And in reality, the, uh, 
the uh, wetter drown out spots weren't quite so bad. It was more kind of uh, ancillary areas. Very, very, very odd. All right. Uh, what else do you guys want to hit on here today? Well, well Seth, uh, Seth, you and I have had a little bit of conversation of uh, topic that we've talked uh, uh, about extensively on the corn side. And in my world, dealing with nitrogen yeah. is, is excess <clears throat> nitrates following this last growing season. Uh, we expect that in, in situations where we uh, had corn planted, so in, in the case where we'll be rotating to soybeans next year, um, potentially not all of the nitrogen fertilizer that was applied got used by the plant. Uh, we historically will see some residual in, and I know research done uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago with IDC uh, from, from George Ream and others uh, identified excess nitrogen in the soil as being a trigger for IDC. Uh, is there a reason for farmers to have this on their mind coming into this season? And do we have any thoughts on, on management? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this and it's, it's a complicated question because it's, you know, we're, we're talking about potentially changing up some of our rotations or that, that's a, that's always a big challenge for farmers. Um, but I think that, you know, we have to break this question up in its pieces, right? So the, you know, the big driver this year is obviously the economics of, of nitrogen and other fertilizer applications. And so is there any, the first piece and then is to think about, is there any better utilization of that, um, of that residual end? Is there another crop that can actually take advantage of it? Because the, you, we have to remember that the soybean is a nice crop because it'll soak up anything that's left over, but the problem is is we don't get any economic benefit from it. Those soybeans are lazy and they're going to take up every bit of soil nitrate they can find. And when they need to fix a little bit of nitrogen, they're going to fix it on their own at no penalty for our yield. Uh, but we're not going to get any benefit for them from the soybean crop for this. And so is there another way to use it? So do would a grower want to put in a, a cereal crop that could better utilize that? You know, and if we put corn on corn, then that just is going to take more, more total nitrogen. Uh, so it actually costs us more. Um, and and in, a, in a year that's a lot, it's going to take a lot of money to put in the crop, that may be, not be the, uh, the answer. But then again, who knows what that corn soybean price ratio is going to be in March, and and maybe there's, maybe the market's going to continue to really beg for some corn if if folks really pull back from, uh, on nitrogen inputs, uh, there's going to be an opportunity there to that the market's going to be asking for some corn. So I think people have to be open to that as well. And then Brad mentioned the, the you mentioned Brad that the um, the IDC thing, and so as we go west in the state. We do know very clearly that excess nitrogen is a big driver of IDC. Uh, in fact, I continue to do a lot of IDC work. We don't do work on N per se, but we use nitrogen to drive IDC. So uh, we put out um, 75 pounds of N in the spring uh, on plots uh, to increase the, the intensity of IDC in our plots. Now that's a lot of extra N. Uh, but we definitely get a big bang for the buck out of that, and we get a lot of IDC in these plots. And so um, we finally rethought this thing and decided we actually need to do an end rate on, on soybean and IDC this year, so we'll finally put that out this year. But it's something we just have worked around indirectly. Both George and I worked on 
um, you know, cover crops or companion crops that would help soak up some of that N. And so things like uh, cereals, like uh, early cereals, like oats, do a really nice job soaking up extra N in the soil. Some of the cover crops, if people have rye out there, of course, that's going to take care of any of this extra N. Um, but um, I think farmers really have to think hard about it. I've caught, in some, I've caught some flack for introducing this idea because there may not be a lot of options for people, but I think farmers still have to consider that, um, that this is a variable that's quite different this year where they've got excess nitrogen uh, and excess of something that actually has quite a high value to it if we could put it to, to use in the right, um, for the right crop and the right use. Did they ever get to the point, Seth, of having a, uh, a trigger as far as soil nitrate concentration? Because uh, I, I know, from, again, from the, kind of from the corn side, we've been encouraging producers to do some soil sampling and, and see what their nitrate levels are out there. Uh, is, do you have any feel at all for where they might expect to start seeing problems? I mean, clearly it's gonna be also coupled with places where there's high pH, um, you know, on basically the whole Western half of the state and, and those areas. But uh, I mean, we've been seeing some, some of the early numbers I've seen are our uh, 20 parts per million. I mean, we're, we're, and that was in a one foot sample. Our, our soil test actually recommends a two foot, but in a one foot, I mean, we're looking at about an 80 pound uh, nitrogen credit there, you know, and you're talking about being able to significantly trigger uh, IDC problems with 75 pounds. Uh, you know, clearly there's, there's at least at the moment, there's enough residual to create problems if it doesn't get a lot wetter between now and spring. And from a water quality standpoint, I guess we'd rather that we didn't end up losing that nitrate. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that the folks that really know the answer to this, and I haven't been able to pin any of them down. They've all been in tree stands, I think, over the last week here. But uh, the 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 consultants that are working um, in southern Minnesota with sugar beet growers are look really interested because they're growing a lot of beets after corn. And so they're doing a really good, thorough job of analyzing, um, doing soil. They've historically done a good job doing fall soil uh, nitrate tests in, in these fields in order to steer some fields away from sugar beets where we have excess N. Now the question is, have those same folks gone out and looked at uh, what kind of a soybean crop they've gotten when they've when they've steered themselves or steered their co uh, customers away from from beets, and that's really the question: is what what's that threshold that that seems to um, that's that's too much for the beets, and then it seems to also push on our IDC and our soybeans. And I think those guys have the answers. It's going to be very anecdotal, but I think we uh, I think that that there's a lot of good historical um, knowledge out there that, that we need to tap into, I think it's going to help steer us in the right direction. And don't forget, I mean, those soil test values, when, when you, those numbers tend to be quite dynamic when, when spring comes and early summer, they can, they can flip flop around quite a bit over the course of a week or even two weeks. So it's a, it's always been a tough number for me to get my head around as far as what does it mean and how much is it going to change over the course of the next couple of weeks? You know, I think Brad could, should speak to this, but from my standpoint, I think look at those numbers as, I, I think, you know, as guides. Uh, and then the other side of it is uh, with, with what you just mentioned, Ryan, is that these things are going to move around a lot and we don't know what the final is going to be and we don't know, you know, what, 
how that's going to affect our crop. But then on the other side of it, I think we also have to look that, in, as Brad mentioned early on, that in general, where we had low corn yields, we're going to have more N than we would have had otherwise. And so I think you can, I think you can kind of um, tease the, um, the, the split the difference between those two pieces of that and, and probably come up with some reasonable ways to consider some management strategies around this. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, in the absence of actually having a, a trigger uh, soil nitrate concentration to start making some management decisions on, I guess the only thing I'd say is, um, you know, from a nitrogen management standpoint, we need those uh, we need those samples to be taken, the tests to be done before nitrogen fertilizer gets on uh, when we do a corn crop, of course. And so typically we're talking late March and early April. And so we're, we're fairly comfortable with the results that come back. Now, if you're looking at, uh, at taking a sample later in the year and it was following corn, uh, some of the studies we've done over the years um, related to the pre-side dress nitrate test indicates that once the corn residue from last year starts breaking down, it'll tie up some of that nitrogen and give you sort of a false negative, if you will, to give you a low number when it re in reality it's actually out there uh, because it wasn't present as nitrate. And so, um, yeah, I guess we'd, we'd, I'd caution folks if they're using that, uh, if it gets uh, warm and, and we start breaking down residue, you might not be getting an accurate number anymore too. Yeah, nitrogen's gonna be a real challenge this year, guys. I think, uh, well, I got a text message this morning Spring urea selling for $775 a ton, which is not quite double of what we paid last year. So it's uh, it's certainly going to be a challenge to think about and how to use some of those uh, numbers to your advantage, really, with, with shifting acres or changing your plans around a little bit. I, I don't know. It's going to be a tough one to watch and see and see how real these numbers are. I mean, when spring rolls around... Well, well, Seth, you know, realistically, I guess we did a podcast here last week in the nutrient management group that was looking at the, the nitrogen side and what some of our, our folks were talking about there. And we had some people from industry were talking about um, not necessarily having issues with availability, but that the price was going to be quite high. And what they were anticipating was that dealers were going to um, they were going to be booking that nitrogen and, you know, and then of course selling it, using it for the, whatever farmers spoke for it, but probably will not be acquiring any additional N because of the risk to purchasing it high and then having the price fall and having to sell it for a loss. And so it's also conceivable we're going to have some farmers out there who are planning on growing corn next year who really don't get on it maybe because of reluctance of prices or whatever and may end up finding out they can't get nitrogen so uh, that of course is going to have a big implication on on soybean acres when all is said and done yeah it's a there's a some big uh, macroeconomic questions here but i guess i would be really um the one that i'm most scared about is those farmers that haven't booked it and haven't spoken for any because uh, they feel that this uh, price is just unrealistic and it's way out of bounds and that it's going to come back. And so those folks are going to cause real problems, as you mentioned, because they're going to be out there um, shopping around and then they're going to push prices even higher in that last minute. And so 
Um, the question it really is, is somebody really monitoring this within these companies that understands how many pounds and tons of N that they're going to need across the geography and be able to do a better job of, of buying rather than just saying we're only going to buy what, 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 people, um, what people are booked? Um, or are they just purely creating um, that speculative market and that scarcity? Um, you know, that's, you know, there's always that question too. So thinking that there could be some last second uh, changes of plans and, and uh, uh, some acres going to beans just simply because farmers didn't get ahead of the game on, on their nitrogen purchases, uh, is the seed uh, industry, do we, do we consider them capable of uh, uh, widespread uh shifts like that or do we have to also be worried about that that uh, um, maybe, maybe there's not going to be a, a the seed available if you decide at the last second you're going to be changing seed availability is always a question and I don't another it's another black box and I think the guys in the big companies all know what the game is and know these numbers but we know that they overproduce everything, and there's there's always replants, there's problems, there's always production problems. So they're they're overproducing now. You have to lay on this year's production issues. So where soybeans are being grown, for instance, this year, and the yield yields of those seed beans in 2021. 20, so if we if we narrow that down a little bit. You know, we may not be purely at double, but there should be a good there should be good soybean uh, uh, availability. But my argument always is, those are the worst soybeans that are left over. Um, the best ones are sold first, and um, we know there's 10, 20 bushel difference between the top ones and the bottom ones. And so, uh, I just urge farmers not to not to be the last guy to pick up whatever seed is available from their from their dealer because they're probably uh, going to end up with a dog. So, lots lots of risk management going on. I I don't know how you split all this. I think that farmers are pretty sharp and have done a good job and, and do a lot of um, their own internal risk management, meaning they're probably buying a big chunk of their end in the fall. They're buying, they're speaking for some for spring, you know, they're, 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 they're booking quite a bit of uh, seed. So um, hopefully this stuff will all work out and, and, and our hysteria will not carry on <laughs> into, into the actual uh, practice in the spring. Time will tell. Well, anything else you guys want to talk about today? All right. Well, thanks, Seth, for, for coming on the show again today. And uh, thanks to all our listeners out there. This is another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. Thanks again. Thanks.